Our uh, scripture reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses uh, 1 through 7. You can follow along on the screen in your bulletin, or if you brought Bibles with you, you can follow along there as well. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, may the words of of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts here this morning be pleasing to you. We need to hear your voice, Father, so speak to us here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, in the news today, but there was uh, an interesting story that came out of Arkansas. And uh, in Arkansas, they, this week, they installed a monument to the uh, Ten Commandments on the campus of the, the Arkansas uh, State Capitol. And uh, anytime this happens, and this, it happens quite frequently, there's usually a lengthy court battle as to whether they should allow a religious symbol like a monument to the Ten Commandments to be installed on public property. There's uh, the arguments of separation of church and law and state and all the other arguments uh, that go with it. But after a two-year process, this monument was allowed to be installed on this campus, and they, of course, installed it. And then just a day later, an article came out saying that someone with their car crashed into the monument. I don't know it was whether it was by accident or on purpose, but there was some sort of a Facebook video about somebody crying freedom as they crashed into uh, this monument. So it was only up for one day from start uh, to finish after a two-year process. It's, it's stories like these which uh, seem to pop up every couple of months uh, that have made, in many ways, the Ten Commandments the, the kind of most recognizable section of Scripture from the Old Testament, at least culturally. Uh, if we haven't read them before, we've at least heard them before. Maybe some of you have actually memorized them uh, before, but they are these incredibly well-known verses from the Old Testament Scriptures. Some believe that they are just a vestige of some ancient society, that they meant something to a certain people group in a certain time period, and they might be interesting for us to study uh, sociologically and to understand what's happening, but they really have no bearing upon us today. Many people believe that. They were just an ancient morality for an ancient time, and we've become much more enlightened culturally, and it's time for us to move on from such archaic commandments. But what if they didn't just mean something then? What if they were actually given by God to a certain people in a certain context, but meant for universal application? What if they mean something to us today? 
Well, this summer, what we're doing here at City Church is we are exploring that very thing. We're exploring these Ten Commandments. If you look in the Old Testament, they're actually recorded for us twice. You can read about them in Exodus 20. That's the, the passage that we just read from. And then if you go a couple books ahead in the, in the Old Testament, you can read about them in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as well. But they were referred to throughout all of the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament as well. They are all over the Scriptures. H.L. Mencken, who was, uh, wrote for, the, I believe, the Baltimore Sun, a famous Baltimore author, and was no friend to religion, uh, he said this about the Ten Commandments. He said, "'Say what you will about the Ten Commandments. You must always come back to the pleasant fact that there are only ten of them.'" Right? That's one positive way to look at it, I suppose. See, one of the, one of the misconceptions that people have about the Ten Commandments is that they are necessary for us to follow in order to earn our way into heaven. Many people view them as the greatest moral checklist that there is out there. If I do good at them or if I, if I follow them more than I don't, then I'll somehow make my way into heaven. And if I don't check off enough of those boxes, then God is not going to allow me into His presence once I die. But if we're honest with ourselves, and if we believe that, and if that is true, then there really is no hope for us. We are all doomed, because what the Scriptures tell us is that God demands perfection from us, and we all fall far short of his standard. So following the the Ten Commandments as a way to get us into heaven is not really a way for us, members of fallen humanity, to make it into heaven. And so the Ten Commandments become for us less about a checklist and more about a response. You see, the context in which they were first given becomes really important to us. As I mentioned, we read about them from the book of Exodus, and when the book of Exodus opens up in the Old Testament, it tells us that God's people, His special people, had become enslaved to their Egyptian rulers. They were an oppressed people group who cried out to God for for hundreds of years that He would come to them and rescue them. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, God hears their cries to be released from oppression, and He sends them a deliverer, a rescuer, who comes and saves them from their oppression and their enslavement. When God did this, He was staying true to a promise that He had made to this people group. He promised them all the way back uh, in the form of a covenant to Abraham that He would be their special God and they would be His special people. So after God comes and rescues these people through all sorts of miraculous events, He brings them out into the desert and He brings them to a foot of a mountain and gives them these laws. He gives them these Ten Commandments. They were not a list of commandments that God's people had to do in order to be rescued. They had already been rescued. Instead, they were intended to be God's people's response to being rescued. 
They were the standards that God's people were to live by as a rescued people group. Out of gratitude for God's rescue, this is the way they were supposed to live, the way they were supposed to conduct themselves. But I think these commandments had a different purpose too. They were laws given to distinguish them as a unique people who were to be defined by gratitude. And if God's people were to follow these commandments, it was going to make them very different than all of the other nations who were around them. It would make them a means that God would use to change the world. And in many ways, that is what they mean to us today as well. We, you and I, are not an oppressed people group who are dominated by some foreign military power, but what the gospel tells us is that we are oppressed by sin and death. That we stand condemned before a holy God waiting for the just punishment that each one of us deserves because of our sin. But what the gospel also tells us is that if we cry out to God for rescue, then we will experience deliverance. Jesus becomes our rescuer. He becomes our deliverer. So obedience to these commandments is a sign. It's a display of a life that has been changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And following them ought to make us unique. They ought to distinguish us as different from everyone else that exists in our world. So those of you who know Christ, is there evidence of that in your life? Out of gratitude, do you live a life that is different than the rest of the world? Do people take notice of you because there is something unexplainably different or unique about you? See, the Ten Commandments show us how to be unique, how to live in response to our rescue. We looked at the first commandment a a few weeks ago, and this morning I want to look briefly at both the second and the third commandment. The second commandment is is given to us in verses 4 through 6. It says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This uh, second commandment forbids the worship of idols. And this is one of those commandments that when we look at it at first, we think we've got this one covered. We, we, we think we can handle this one at least at the first glance at this commandment. You see, in the Old Testament, all the peoples uh, that surrounded God's people were given uh, to the worship of idols. They would take created things, uh, things like trees and rocks or, or minerals or something unique like that, and they would fashion them into gods and then worship them. They would worship them. They would sometimes clothe them, sometimes bathe them, uh, sometimes offer sacrifices uh, to these things. That would be their system of worship. But God's people were told that they were not supposed to do this. They were not supposed to substitute something that was created for the Creator. They were to worship God alone. 
But the fact that there is so much commentary on this commandment, commentary meaning the subsequent verses that follow this, that describe God as a jealous God, that should clue us in to to the fact that there is something deeper going on here than what first meets the eye. It clues us in on the fact that this is much more about a relationship than it is necessarily a practice. The passage tells us that God is jealous for our affections. He wants single-minded devotion from His people, single-minded love from His people. So, in effect, anything that steals our affection away from God, that competes for our single-minded devotion, is considered today to us to be an idol. It might not be rocks and stones and minerals, but it could be things like wealth and success and reputation. It could be a relationship that is more important to us than our relationship with God. You see, our relationship with God ought to be the most foundational and defining relationship of our lives. It's the relationship that ought to be more important than all other relationships. The relationship that should inform our identity, the essence of who we are, more than anything else. Before anything else, you and I were children of God, made in His image, redeemed and adopted by Jesus Christ. Everything else in our lives ought to be secondary. What that means is that if all other things in our lives were tragically taken away, we of course would be sad, we would of course have difficulty, but in the end it would not crush us. If all the wealth and the fame and the status were taken away from us tomorrow, we would not be crushed at our essence because the most defining relationship of our lives can never be taken away. When trying to determine what your idols may be, it's good to ask yourself a few questions. Maybe ask yourself, what thing, if taken away in an instant, would crush us at the core of our being? If your job were stolen from you tomorrow, would it absolutely ruin you? If so, your job might be an idol. If your wealth dried up tomorrow, if your investment portfolio guy called you up and said, hey, it's all gone, it was all gone in an instant, would that crush you? If so, maybe your wealth has become your idol. Or what if that one relationship was taken away from you in an instant? Would you be unable to go on? If so, it might mean that that relationship has become your idol. See, idols are always really good things. They're not necessarily bad things, but they are good things that we elevate to the level of ultimate. An idol is anything that we raise as the ultimate ground of our existence and identity that is not God. In a sense, all of us are idolaters. John Calvin wrote this. He said, This vice is rooted in the depth of our bones. There is no one among us who does not invent idols in infinite number. 
In fact, if you remember the story from Exodus, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving these laws, including this one, what are his people doing at the bottom? They are fashioning their own idol to worship. In another place, Calvin wrote that our hearts are idol factories. And so, God, he demands our perfect loyalty. In fact, if you are his, know that God is actually in the idol-smashing business. Sometimes he does it in easy ways, but more often he does it in very hard ways as well. He is in the business of constantly showing us the emptiness of the idols that we worship. He's in the business of stripping away all the things that steal our affection away from him. And so, as one commentator wrote, the beginning of obedience is finding in Him our deepest pleasures. Friends, where do you find your deepest and most abiding and most sustaining pleasures in life? Because if the answer is not God, then your heart is engaged in idolatry. The next commandment also carries with it a relational dynamic, too. That's the third commandment. You read about it in verse 7. You shall shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When we first look at this commandment, we think about all the obvious things, right? We ought not to use God's name flippantly. We ought not to use it disrespectfully. If we swear by God, then it ought to mean something, We ought not to uh, treat uh, the name of God with any sort of disrespect. In fact, we ought to defend it with utmost respect. What, What this commandment does is it recognizes the power of our tongue and the sacredness of our speech. And how uh, out of the, the heart, out of the flow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But I also think that this goes beyond just our speech to also touch the level of our behavior. Because we ought to be passionate about the honor of God, not just in our speech, but also in our behavior. If others know that you and I are followers of Jesus Christ, and yet our lives betray the name of Jesus Christ, then we bring dishonor to that name. Our behavior betrays our speech. In fact, to to bear the name of Christian is to declare to the world that we belong to Jesus. So to live in dishonoring ways is to dishonor his name, to drag in many ways that name through the mud. See, many of us work for institutions, and those are institutions that we represent So when we go out in public, especially in the professional world, we are expected to conduct ourselves in ways that reflect well on that institution that we work for or we represent. Well, the same is true for us spiritually. We are Christ's ambassadors. You and I, we are His representatives, so we ought to live in ways that honor, esteem, and extol the name of God. So as you can see, and we'll discover this throughout the whole series that we're going to do, these commands reach far deeper than we often realize. 
We are often trying to soften the standards that God has for us to somehow lower the bar so that we can feel better for ourselves. But instead, what these commandments do as we really look at them is they ought to drive us in two directions. First, they ought to drive us to repentance. Looking at these commandments ought to do in us what is the true heart of following Jesus, to repent daily of the ways that we fall short and instead cling to Him in faith. You see, many of us often grow stagnant in our faith. I've been there too, where we just simply grow cold and tired and and the life seems to have been sucked out of us. And I know what often happens is those moments is we forget our deep and profound need for Jesus. So looking at these commandments reminds us of just how much we need Him. Just how much we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives every moment of every day. So they ought to drive us towards repentance. But lastly, they ought to drive us to display. Peter Enns wrote this. He said, The commandments were not given to make Israel into nice people, but they were given to make them agents of world change, image bearers of God, to be a light to the nations. When we often think that the church needs some sort of strategy to change the world, maybe if we just got our social media strategy together, then we would really start to make a change in this world or some interesting advertising campaign to get things going, then we could really make a difference. And yet the most life-altering, world-changing things that we can do is to live a life of obedience for all of the world to see. This isn't obedience through guilt. Our guilt has already been taken care of. This is obedience through gratitude. We have been rescued by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we are called to live lives of obedience for the world to see, a long obedience in the same direction. So friends, be overwhelmed by the grace that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has forgiven your sins. And let that translate into obedience that is motivated by gratitude and great love for God. Let's pray.